Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week we are joined by Daisuke Tsujiya, partner at the Brunswick Group and Head of Global Japan Practice, to discuss the Japanese business philosophy of Sanpo Yoshi, or the good for three parties. Daisuke argues that this notion of stakeholder capitalism, where a successful business must also benefit others, is an important alternative to the profit-oriented Western model of capitalism, especially in a world where nations are increasingly facing top-heavy demographics. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, Daisuke. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So first of all, as always, we'd like to know a little more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Yes, of course. So I'm a partner and the head of the global Japan practice at uh, a consultancy called Brunswick. Um, what we do is we advise a lot of corporates in critical situations such as M&A or crises and how to deal with a whole range of stakeholders. So be it investors, media, NGOs, employees, government, etc. It's 360 degrees how do you work with these various stakeholders in these critical situations is, is what we advise clients on. Before I joined Brunswick, I was a Japanese diplomat for over 15 years. In many ways, it's funny enough, um, what I used to do as a diplomat is quite similar to what I do now, which is essentially trying to bridge Japan with the rest of the world. Thanks. It's a very broad life experience then. So in your time at Brunswick, you have advocated for stakeholder capitalism through a 17th century Japanese merchant ethos called Sanpo Yoshi, or Good for Three Parties. Could you explain this ethos and provide examples of how it could benefit society today? Yes. Sanpo Yoshi is a way of thinking that business needs to be good for the buyer, the seller, and society. It's essentially the philosophy of stakeholder capitalism that has become such an important concept in, in the West in recent years. Uh, but in, actually, interestingly to note that in Japan, it's, it's been there for, for a few centuries. My own sort of current ambition is to see if we can turn Sampo Yoshi into the next Japanese word that enters into mainstream English language, like sushi or tsunami. And so uh, what examples of Sampoyoshi can we see in society today? Well, I think um, a, a good example of that is how uh, corporates um, should not only be looking into how they can uh, provide shareholder return or profits that will benefit the shareholder. A lot of corporates, I think, are now expected to be thinking more about their employees, the impact they have on wider society, about the environmental impact they might have. You know, these are all concepts that I think in recent times, not only in Japan, but also globally in the West as well, corporates are expected to be thinking about that more. And I believe Sampo Yoshi in many ways is a philosophy that predates that and is very consistent with that. I see. So um, 
A critique of Sanpo Yoshi from Western Businesses is the low return on equity, referring to how this charitable ethos reduces the maximum profits made by the company. You have associated this with the low trust in businesses among citizens in the US and the UK, as opposed to that of Japan. What lessons can businesses in the UK learn from Sanpo Yoshi? Well, a few years ago, Brunswick conducted a piece of research in 20 different countries asking people if they felt corporates were making a positive impact on society. Out of the 20 countries, Japan came out number one in terms of respondents saying, yes, corporates do make a positive impact on society. 80% of people in Japan gave an answer to, to this question saying, yes. Striking contrast to other markets, for example, in the UK, the figure was, uh, I believe, 53%. In the US, it was 43%, so almost half that of Japan. Why this huge contrast? I mean, my own interpretation of that is Japanese corporates and their approach of sampoyoshi, i.e. working with society and not just shareholders, has managed to win them trust domestically. Whereas uh, U.S. and U.K. corporates have perhaps uh, lost their trust as they've been seen as trying to gain profit and shareholder returns to the extent that it was uh, sacrificing much of other parts of society. So with this in mind, would you say that Sampayoshi is a principle which can be seen across most Japanese businesses? Yes, I, I, I think so. I, I mean, it's, of course, something we shouldn't be generalizing. There are varying degrees of, of the level of how Sampo Yoshi is actually part of the ethos of a Japanese corporate. Similar to how in the West as well, there are corporates who are very much focused on shareholder return only, whereas others are uh, thinking more about the wider stakeholder group. So I, I, you know, I, I think we always need to be careful about generalizing too much. But um, going back to your earlier point around low profitability and how Japanese corporates have, in general, come under criticism in the past, I think there was a sense from foreign investors, for example, who saw a lot of the Japanese corporates not giving enough shareholder return, not providing enough profitability. I'll give an example. So say a railway company was keeping a loss-making railway for the sake of serving its local residents. This has actually come under criticism that a U.S. activist shareholder said to a Japanese railway company, this was unacceptable from their perspective um, because it wasn't providing enough profit as a shareholder. From the perspective of shareholder capitalism, it, it makes a lot of sense because business management's primary responsibility is to maximize profitability. But in a world where the lines of business, society, and politics are becoming increasingly blurred, I, I think we are uh, finding that actually that sort of approach is not seen as ideal. Uh, corporates do have a uh, responsibility to society. And actually, for example, in, in the example I gave earlier, sometimes it does make sense to keep a loss-making railway if it has a role 
for the local uh, society. So, I mean, these are sort of the issues that come up. Yeah, I see. And I guess in a time where media is all around us, uh, such altruistic behaviors by large companies can only help the company in terms of uh, increasing its image and its popularity. Yes, I, I think it's not only an issue of its image and popularity. I, I think in, in many cases, um, it, it actually does make sense short term, even if it means loss making or not enough profitability in the short term. If in the long term, it means you are able to, for example, companies which are doing well, thinking about the environment, thinking about society, in many cases will have less risk of having a huge accident, for example, um, of, of factories, or, mm. or, or will be much more um, attuned to potential things that, that could uh, adversely impact their businesses. So in the long term, actually, those businesses that um, look after society, look after the environment, think about their own governance, actually pays in many ways. But sometimes, of course, shareholders are looking for more short-term gain. So it may seem contrary to them, but in the long term, it, it makes sense. Now, so I, I think it's, it's that bit about what is the role of, of corporates and, and do you look at, at it as short-term or long-term? Yeah, that's definitely something which needs to be considered. Um, in another article, you have discussed the notion of a platinum society built on the principles of inclusive capitalism with uh, Hiroshi Komiyama. He defined a platinum society as one where aged societies turn their top-heavy demographic to an advantage. Could you explain for us how the principle of Sanpo Yoshi would support this? Yes. So the so-called last three decades of, of Japan, where the economic growth was, was quite low, this has long been attributed to the super-aging society of Japan. Professor Komiyama's idea is a notion that actually the aging society, while we tend to think of it as a, a reason for gloom and, or doom, is actually an opportunity in disguise. If Japan can find a way to innovate systems and technology in adjusting to the challenges of an aging society, that actually gives them a competitive advantage um, because this isn't just a Japan-specific uh, phenomenon. Europe, China, and other markets will soon follow Japan's path to a, a super-aging society. And so in many ways, what these other countries will need in the future, Japan will come up with, hopefully, ahead of time. So this is the whole concept of uh, the Platinum Society. I think this actually stems from the Sampoyoshi mentality that businesses are actually a force for good in society and that the innovations that they make not only benefit a narrow group of shareholders, but actually can benefit a wider group of stakeholders. Yeah, I see. It's nice to hear a optimistic attitude towards aging societies. One potential pitfall of the platinum society theory would be that while elderly workers can theoretically continue beyond retirement age in intellectual careers, this might not be so transferable for agricultural and other manual labor jobs which are currently in high demand in Japan. 
Would you propose this issue is addressed in the Platinum Society theory? Uh, yes, it is actually. I mean, even for agricultural and, and other manual labor jobs, um, the, the Platinum Society philosophy uh, is, is I, I think, um, is very much applicable because it, the idea is the shortage of such workers will actually spark innovation. So, for example, um, there is a, a Japanese startup robotics company that has developed a wearable robotics system. And it's, it's a very sophisticated therapy in a way that helps people with paralysis or may weakness in their limbs to learn to regain their mobility. So by doing that, I mean, that, that sort of innovation comes out of the fact that with the aging society, there are less of the population who are able to engage in agricultural, traditionally agriculture and other manual labor jobs. But this robotics system allows the less mobile, be it due to age or for other reasons, to actually take part in, in manual labor. You know, this is not to say that we should all have elderly individuals in, in manual labor, but it actually does give a choice that if one wishes to do so, they are able to engage in doing so. Now, that's just really one example. I mean, there are other ways, um, for example, if you take agriculture, Japanese tech companies have supported smart farming, where irrigation systems use less water as sensors are able to detect the precise amount of water required and instruct the system to provide that, and hence makes agriculture much more cost-efficient and, and also environmentally-wise uh, efficient as well. There's various other startups developing, um, for example, vertical farms and, and where you're actually able to grow vegetables on walls in, in urban areas, which takes up much less space than what um, agriculture would traditionally do. And, and hence, as a result, you need much less agricultural workers. So I think the idea, the concept of how looking at the demographics, using the challenges of demographics as an opportunity, as a reason to spark innovation is, is the whole concept of the Platinum Society. And, and hence, I think actually is quite applicable in, the, in, in, in these sort of situations as well. It's certainly an exciting image of the future. I suppose one of the key elements of Japan, which helps to make this idea of a platinum society seem credible is that it is one of the wealthiest economies in the world. And so this idea of widespread use of robotics to facilitate an aging society seems fairly plausible. Uh, how would this be replicated in perhaps nations with, which don't have the, such a strong economy or the facility to create robotics? So I'll just focus on this one area, uh, but it does capture my, my imagination. <laughs> No, 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 absolutely. And so it's a, I think it's a great question. I, I think, you know, there are various uh, societies uh, facing various issues. Um, I think um, the examples we gave around an aging society and hence lack of perhaps a, a younger generation who can engage in agriculture and manual labor jobs. This is a situation that um, we are seeing in a lot of the developed economies. So I think is a model for, for that economy. 
I think, though, we'll see different situations in, in, in other economies, which maybe perhaps are developing economies, which actually have a younger um, population. In that case, I think uh, we would address the issues of, of, that, of those societies in a different way. For example, if the major concern is health and having a healthy population, I think having a, a, a universal healthcare system, something that, for example, when, when Japan was much younger in terms of its own population in the uh, early 50s or 60s, that was indeed one of the ways in which the issues that that particular society was facing. I, I think uh, universal healthcare can address issues for such populations or societies. Just in another example of how you take an issue, a challenge of society and how you overcome that, Japan in the 1970s took the brunt of the oil shock quite heavily because uh, Japan was a predominantly import-dependent economy in terms of fossil fuels. So what happened as a result of that? Fossil fuel prices went up. That meant Japan was in a very difficult situation because it couldn't produce its own fossil fuels. Out of necessity, it had to innovate and create more energy-efficient products, which actually, as a result, helped them put them at a competitive advantage. So I think rather than looking at the platinum society way of thinking as a one model fits all. I think it's more looking at it as various societies have various challenges. Actually, challenges can also be hidden opportunities. And if you're able to tackle and find ways to tackle the challenges, that can actually help you to uh, uh, have a, a competitive advantage. So so sorry, it's a long-winded answer, but I, I think um, it's important to look at the specific challenges that a particular society is facing and then look at what are the ways to actually overcome that challenge is sort of the thinking, I think, of the uh, Platinum Society. Yeah, I would definitely agree with you that uh, it's in terms of crisis that we need to innovate. We've seen that repeated throughout history. Thank you for answering all these questions so far. For the last question, I'd like to ask you, um, do you believe the principles of Sanpo Yoshi and the Platinum Society are easily replicated outside of Asia? How can Japanese businesses capitalize overseas through these approaches? And what could they be doing better now? Yeah, well, thanks very much. To, to answer your question about can they be replicated, yes, we've sort of gone through both how Sampo Yoshi and stakeholder capitalism is already now catching on very much in other places. Platinum society, if we consider, look at that as the aging society issue, again, those are phenomenons that is not peculiar to Japan. So I do think these ways of thinking can be applied. In terms of what Japanese businesses can do, I think that they can actually apply a lot of their own thinking, be it for Sampo Yoshi, they've been, a lot of these companies have been doing it for, for centuries. Platinum Society, maybe not as long, but at least in the last 20, 30 years has been on the minds of many of these Japanese companies. So in, in terms of how they approach these issues um, can be very much applied, I think, um, to these situations as they expand more globally. 
One element that I feel Japanese companies could be better at is um, communicating these ways of thinking, these approaches they've, they've taken with international stakeholders. As they've enjoyed so much trust domestically in Japan due to Sampo Yoshi, they also enjoy the luxury of staying silent and letting their services or goods do the talking, so to say. It's a great position to be in. I mean, they get the benefit of the doubt. However, as they expand further overseas, uh, they need to realize that they'll be seen in a less favorable light. So we were talking about how in some markets, trust in business is under 50%. In such markets, if you're quiet, the assumption is going to be that you're not a force for good. Whereas in Japan, if you're silent, 80% of the population assume you are a force for good. So I think as they expand, and, and they are currently expanding uh, very rapidly to all, all different markets across the globe, they do need to make a conscious effort to communicate the case, or else they can end up being unfairly blamed in crises or not be given enough credit for, for some of the positive impact that they can actually have on society. Yeah, so it sounds like it's less a matter of directly challenging incorrect assumptions as just giving yourself proper representation in overseas markets. Is that correct? Yes, I, I think it's um, telling their own story, explaining what they're about, what the company is about, not just talking about its, its goods and services, but what is the philosophy behind how they run their businesses? I mean, these are things that I think um, a lot of Japanese companies can be much more explicit, especially when they go abroad and engage with various stakeholders, be it employees, customers, governments, or NGOs. Yeah, very true. If I may slightly diverge from the topic, in politics, Britain has officially left the EU, and one of the supposed triumphs that a government likes to promote is the UK-Japan trade deal that's been made. Do you foresee a greater presence of Japanese businesses and products in the UK and vice versa as a result of this? Very good question. I, I think, um, to be fair, the Japan-UK freight treaty agreement uh, very much mirrors the Japan-EU freight trade agreement or the economic partnership agreement. So I don't think this will suddenly bring more businesses to the UK. Um, I, I, I would like to say, though, that um, it's worth noting that um, uh, a lot of Japanese businesses do see and continue to see um, the UK as a very important market. A lot of um, uh, businesses, um, especially both in, in manufacturing and services, um, do a lot of business here. I think they will not suddenly leave because of Brexit. I don't think it's a, uh, a situation where we will suddenly see an exodus. Um, I do think that this FDA is quite welcome, though, because it, it gives assurances to Japanese businesses that the, the UK is, is very open to business, that it, it continues to want to work closely with, with Japanese businesses. So, so I think in that sense, the symbolic meaning of showing the willingness to continue to do business with Japan is, is quite important. Some new elements around digital 
business, but um, more or less aligned with the Japan-EU EPA to give more continuity and a, a sense of assurance, I think, is what that agreement meant. Well, thank you, Desuke, for giving us this uh, positive view of the future in so many different areas. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. You can find a link to Daisuke's profile and articles in the description below. Next week, we will be joined by Nick Kapoor, Associate Professor of History at Rutgers University, to discuss violent political activism, drawing comparisons between the 1960 Anpo riots of Japan over US-Japan relations with the Capitol Hill riots we saw at the start of the year. We hope you all join us then. Thank you for listening.